Well, there have been times in the history of the human race when a person has stepped forward and through the written word has turned the world upside down. Now, that happened quite literally in the mid-1500s. A rather unattractive but brilliant man. Let's see. Where's our guy? Here he is. Not very attractive guy, but very brilliant man named Nicholas Copernicus stepped out of the dark ages and he wrote a radical book, a revolutionary book, where for the first time he both stated and mathematically proved that the earth is not the stationary center of the universe. Uh, now that sounds like old news to us. We kind of all have figured out that the earth actu- or the, the, is actually rotating or revolving around the sun. But in the Middle Ages, this was really new news to them. It really shook them up. For millennia, human beings had taken great comfort from the belief that the ground under their feet was not moving. And that they were at the center of the universe. That was a source of great confidence and peace for the human race. But then Nicholas Copernicus, he steps in and he changes everything. He turns the world upside down by saying, no, actually, the the earth is not fixed. It's not the center of the universe. It's actually hurtling through space at unimaginable speed. And that scared people. It really shook their world up. Overnight, Nicholas Copernicus gave humanity a new way of seeing their world, of seeing their universe and their place in it. One short book totally turned the world upside down. Well, this morning we're going to look at something far shorter than Nicholas's book. We're going to look at one passage of Philippians. You can turn there now. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 is where we're looking this morning. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. One short paragraph, actually, in your Bible. It's not, not very long at all. And yet it is no less revolutionary than the book that Copernicus wrote. In the passage this morning, God has given us this passage to turn our world, spiritually speaking, upside down. God wants to give us a new way of seeing our lives, particularly of seeing our circumstances. How do we evaluate the circumstances of life, the things that happen to us in the course of, their, of our lives, whether they are good or bad? God wants to give us a new lens through which to evaluate our circumstances, And this isn't some mere intellectual exercise this morning. God wants to change our lives in a very practical way this morning. He wants to help us grow in our peace and in our joy and in our confidence in life, even in the bad things of life, even in the suffering moments of life. That's the goal this morning, that by seeing the world like Paul saw it, by seeing through this new lens that God is going to give us, that you would find joy and peace and comfort even in the midst of pain. That's what God wants for you this morning. But you have to be willing to see the world like Paul did, to see the circumstances of your life as he did. So let's look at how Paul evaluated life. Look with me starting in verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this... I rejoice. 
Now, where we are in the book of Philippians is uh, a really a really common spot in most ancient letters. When, when an author wrote a letter in the ancient world, he would include a, a, a detailed list of his circumstances. We do the same thing. When you sent out your Christmas cards last Christmas, you probably included a letter in there that summarized what's been going on in the life of your family. That was very common to do in letters. Now, for Paul, it's a little different. His audience, the Philippians, they already know his circumstances. What, what are they? What's, what are Paul's circumstances right now? Well, he's in prison. He is under house arrest in the city of Rome. He is facing the verdict of a trial that could be so, as serious as the death penalty. Now, why is that? Why is Paul in prison? Well, because he was faithful to Jesus Christ. Because he proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ, he's now in prison. Now, the Philippians know that. They're familiar with Paul's circumstances. Uh, In fact, they've already sent one of their best guys, Epaphroditus, to go take care of Paul while he's in prison. So Paul doesn't need to rehearse his circumstances. Instead, he takes this opportunity in the letter not to rehearse his circumstances, but to reinterpret them. That's what this passage is this morning. Paul is going to give us his interpretation of prison. What Paul is concerned about is that the Philippians have looked at his circumstances and drawn the wrong conclusion. He's concerned that they're looking at all these bad things happening in his life. Now he's in prison and they're arriving at the wrong conclusion. And so Paul speaks into their lives to correct them, to give them an accurate way of looking at his imprisonment. And really the the big idea of what Paul wants them to grasp is right there in verse 12. Right at the beginning is the big idea of the whole passage. All of 13 through 18 modify this one big idea. My circumstances, or namely prison, has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That's the big idea of the whole passage. Now, the word in in your Bible is translated greater. In in Greek, it's it's really, it's more the sense of rather. Rather than thinking prison has turned out for bad, it's actually turned out for good. It's a word that implies irony. The the whole passage we're studying this morning is is rich with irony. Hey, guys, you know, I, I know it looks like Satan has won a huge victory here. He got me thrown in prison, but guess what? It's really not turned out that bad after all. It's actually turned out really good. Really good. And and then notice Paul defines what good is. He tells us what good means. Well, good is anything that causes the gospel to go forward. Anything that advances the gospel, that's good. So Paul looks at his life and he says, yeah, I'm in prison. That looks bad, but hey, surprise. Actually, it's turned out for great good because it's caused the gospel to go forward. Now, that definition of good, it shouldn't surprise you. Remember a couple weeks ago, we studied verses three through eight where Paul told us that as citizens of heaven, all of us, regardless of whatever job we have, all of us have one occupation. What is that one occupation? To advance the gospel, locally and globally. That's why we're on earth, to share Jesus with other people. That's the only reason we're still here. So if Paul really believes that, then naturally, how would he evaluate the circumstances of his life? Well, anything that helps me accomplish that mission, getting the gospel out there, it's good. Regardless of how I feel about it, it's good if it moves the gospel forward. Conversely, anything that hinders the gospel, that's bad, regardless of how I feel about it. So Paul sees the world very black and white. Things are good if they advance the gospel, they're bad if they don't. Now, Paul's statement here, it's it's actually a little bit surprising to us. Let me explain. Paul, if you look at his life, really was probably one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church. And now he was in prison. He he was locked in a room that he could not leave. That sounds like a setback for the gospel, doesn't it? It's like if they locked up Billy Graham in the middle of the 60s when he's out there sharing the gospel. It sounds like a bad thing. 
Here's the best evangelist in the church's history and you've just locked him up. Looks like a huge victory for Satan. And yet Paul's saying, no, actually, God has turned the tables. God has turned the tables on his enemy. He's taken what looked like Satan's victory and turned it into its defeat because the gospel's actually going forward. Paul's making a radical claim here. Yeah, I, I'm, I am one of the greatest evangelists ever, but me being in prison is actually better for the gospel. People are hearing about Jesus because I am locked up. Now that, that's an amazing statement. It's an amazing claim. So Paul takes the rest of the passage to prove it. It's really what the rest of your passage is. Paul's simply proving that amazing statement. Can God really bring good out of the fact that the greatest evangelist ever is locked behind bars? Yeah, he can. And let, let me prove it to you. That's what Paul says. So he gives you the first proof in verse 13. Paul says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Uh, the grammar here is a little bit confusing in this passage. Paul literally says in Greek, my imprisonment in Christ has become well known. Uh, what does it mean, my imprisonment in Christ? What Paul's saying is that these two groups, the, the Praetorian Guard, we'll talk about them in the minute, and everybody else, they have become aware that I am in prison, not as a criminal, not as a lawbreaker, but because I am related to Jesus Christ. That's what in Christ means here. Because I have a relationship with Christ. They understand I'm not here because I'm a bad guy. I'm here by choice. I'm in prison because I chose to be related to Jesus Christ, to suffer with Jesus Christ. That's really amazing. We'll get to chapter three here in in not too long, a couple months, and we'll see that um, when Paul looked at his life, one of his great ambitions in life was actually to suffer. Sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Paul wanted to suffer. Why? Because Jesus suffered. And Paul wants to be like Jesus in every way, bar none. And so Paul wants to suffer. So what Paul's saying is everybody is is finding out, I'm not here because I'm a prisoner. I'm not here because I'm a criminal. I'm here by choice because I've chosen to suffer alongside Jesus Christ, to connect my life with his Here's what I think is going on. Paul tells us that the whole Praetorian Guard has, has found out about his situation. Praetorian Guard, that's 9,000 elite troops living in Rome whose job was to protect the emperor. They're kind of like our secret service, but they get to carry swords. And, and in addition to protecting the emperor, they, they guard prisoners under house arrest. So what's happened is, is the empire, the, the emperor, he has put Paul in prison and then he has chained a praetorian guard to Paul 24-7. There was a guard chained to him all the time. They took four-hour shifts. So every four hours, Paul gets a new guard chained to his wrist. Now, I look at that situation and I think, man, that stinks. Okay, Paul, Paul is, is under house arrest. He can't go where he wants to go. He can't do what he wants to do. And yet now he can't even enjoy any privacy. For two years, he had no privacy ever. He was always chained to a guard. I would hate that. That would be so frustrating to me. That would be torture to me. What is it to Paul? (laughs) Paul's thinking captive audience. Paul's thinking, all right, you're going to throw me in prison to hinder the gospel, and then you're going to chain to me one of your guards, a different guard, every four hours. I get to share my faith all the time with guys who can't walk away. And that's the beauty here. (laughs) These guards can't go anywhere. They're chained to Paul just like he's chained to them. They've got to listen to this guy for four hours. Paul is getting to share the gospel with men who probably would have never darkened the door of a church. I think it was probably real easy to share the gospel. You chain a guard to him, what's the first question that guard's going to ask? What's you in for? Why am I guarding you? What's Paul's response going to be? Well, 
Not because I broke any law, but because I really love this man named Jesus who came to earth, died for my sins, and rose from the dead. And the guard's gonna say, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden, within the first five minutes, Paul's sharing the gospel with this guy. Now, I'm sure there were some guards who really weren't interested in talking to Paul. He's a prisoner after all. That's okay. Because for four hours, they saw the first prisoner in their whole lives who never complained and never begged for his freedom. Simply sat there with a smile on his face, loving anybody who came to his apartment, caring about the guard, praying for the guard. The guard's thinking, I've never seen anything like this. It is so amazing. The man is so incredible. His story is so unbelievable that every guard takes that story back. If you do the math, there's no way that all 9,000 guards took a shift with Paul. And yet, because his story is so amazing, all of them got back to the barracks, and what's the first thing they do? You can't wait to tell you about this guy I guarded today. It doesn't take long at all for the story of Paul to spread throughout the whole barracks, all 9,000 troops. In fact, it goes beyond them, and everybody in the city who hears about Paul finds out that he's in prison, not because he's a criminal, but because he believes that a man named Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. This is an amazing thing that God has done. Satan thought he had won a huge victory. Let's put your greatest evangelist in jail. What does God do? He says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, I'm gonna turn that upside down, put him in prison, and I'm gonna make the gospel go forth even further. I'm gonna get the gospel into the lives of people who would have never walked into a synagogue, who would have never listened to Paul in the free world. I'm gonna chain them to him so that they have no choice but to hear. So that's Paul's first proof. God is bringing great good for the advance of the gospel through my imprisonment because soldiers and civilians, thousands of them throughout Rome are finding out I'm here because of Jesus and they're hearing the gospel. Paul's not done. He has a second proof for us in verse 14. He says, And most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What's going on here is Paul saying, my imprisonment is not just having surprising results in the city of Rome, it's having surprising results in the church in Rome as well. Now, when Satan caused me to be locked up, I'm sure he expected that you lock up Paul and it's going to cause all the rest of the church to go into fear, to go underground. They don't want to be locked up like Paul was. Satan thinks that he's going to inspire fear in the church. What happens instead? Instead of inspiring fear, he inspires fire in the bones of the other Christians out there. They say, hey, Paul is willing to to go to prison for this gospel we heard from him. It must be true. must be worth something if he's willing to go to prison for it. So I'm going to take it seriously and I'm going to get out there and share my faith too. That's how the the spread of the church has worked throughout history. In the mid-2nd century AD, in the early church, a great theologian named Tertullian said, in the blood of the martyrs lies the seed of the church. His point is, when you kill us, more come back in our place. You put us to death, there'll be more of us as a result. Put us to death and more of us are gonna go out and share the gospel. You can't stop the church through violence. It will only inspire us to go out there and share the gospel more broadly. We saw that in our own country about 50 years ago. A guy named Jim Elliott and four other graduates from Wheaton College. They graduated and they went as missionaries to South America to preach the gospel to the Aka Indians. They get off their plane and what happens? They're slaughtered. The Aka Indians put them to death immediately. Now you would expect that that kind of gruesome result would cause missions applicants from Wheaton to decrease, right? They're going to pick the easy route. Let's go be bankers. Let's not go overseas. What happens instead? If you look at the numbers, it shot up. Over the next decade, far more graduates from Wheaton went into the mission field. Why? 
Because they saw the example of those five graduates from Wheaton who laid down their lives and they said, man, the gospel's worth it. I'm inspired to go share my faith and they went overseas. That's how the gospel works. When persecution comes into the life of the church, it inspires believers to step up and share the faith. So Satan at this point, I think in Paul's life, was pretty upset. (laughs) He put Paul in prison and it had backfired in every way. Putting Paul in prison had brought the gospel forth through guards, through civilians in Rome, and now it had inspired the rest of the church to go out there and share. And yet, as he often does when, when Satan's plans are thwarted, what does he do? He simply shifts tactics. If Satan can't inspire fear in the church, what will he do instead? Well, how about inspiring jealousy and envy? If he can't stop the gospel going forward through fear, can he do it through pride? Well, that's what Paul uh, tells us has actually happened in Rome. Satan shifted his strategies. He began to inspire selfish ambition, pride, rivalry, jealousies in the church in an effort to stop the gospel, to hinder the gospel. And his efforts were actually paying some real dividends. It was working. Uh, News had reached Paul about this rivalry in the church that was going on in Rome. Word had even spread as far as the Philippians. They had heard about it. So Paul needs to take a moment to clarify Yeah, Satan, he's launched a new attack. Now it's not just about me being in prison. Now he's bringing about rivalry and strife in the church. What about that? How should we evaluate this new attack from our enemy? Well, look with me. Let's start in verse 15 as Paul explains to the Philippians what's going on in Rome. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Uh, Let's look at this for a minute. What is actually going on here? Well, we got two groups of, of people. Those who are doing something good, those who are doing something bad. We'll call these the good guys and the bad guys. But when you look at the language here, all of the good guys and the bad guys, all of them flow out of verse 14. All of them are brethren. Whenever Paul uses that term, as he does in verse 14, he's talking about believers. So these are all believers. They're all Christians here. And you got some believers who are good guys. What they're doing is they're going out and they're sharing the gospel out of good motivations. They desire goodwill. I think that's really goodwill towards Paul. These are basically believers who say, Paul, you you can't share the faith right now because you're locked up. So I'm going to go pick up some of that slack. I'm going to step into the gap that your imprisonment has left and I'm going to go out there and share my faith. They're motivated, it says, by love, love for Paul. They're motivated by true knowledge. They know that God has appointed Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles to defend the gospel, and that includes prison. It's really interesting to me, looking at verse 16 and remembering our sermon last week, what does God want us to grow in above all else? Love and knowledge. What did these good guys have? Love and knowledge. These are mature believers. They are abounding in love for Paul. They have true knowledge. They understand Paul's not in prison because he's a bad guy. He's in prison because he's a good guy. Because God has allowed him to go to prison to suffer with Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna step up and fill that gap and preach the gospel. So these are mature believers. On the other side of the coin, we have some bad guys. They are preaching, it tells us, out of envy and strife. Their motivation is selfish ambition. They're, they're motivated by this desire. They think that they can cause Paul distress while he's in prison. They can cause him stress and discomfort. Now, now what's going on here? This is kind of hard to, to picture in our minds. Actually, it's, it's not that crazy of a situation. Probably what happened. Rome is an unusual church. Um, Paul did not plant the church in Rome. It, it was around before Paul's day. 
And I think when Paul began to grow in influence over the Roman world, over the empire, I think there were probably some believers in Rome who thought, wait, what, what allegiance do we owe to Paul? We planted our own church. Why should we follow him as the apostle of the Gentiles? I think that over time, a faction developed within the church in Rome that was uninterested in submitting to Paul's authority. And we don't know that for sure. I think that's the case. But whatever the case is, Paul is now in prison and this faction says, hey, this is our time. This is our day. The apostle to the Gentiles is in prison. This is our chance to step up and take over the reins of this church. Take over the reins of this ministry. Let's get out there and do the ministry so people will look at us. They will see us as their authority. That's, that's actually not such an unusual thing. We see that same motivation in the church today. People who are out there doing ministry, not for the sake of God, but for the sake of show. They want to look good in front of other people. That's what these guys are doing. They want to look good in front of other people. They want to build up a following. So they're out there preaching the gospel out of a desire to cause Paul stress to diminish his influence and increase their own, to make think, people think that they're great. You know, how does Paul evaluate this new difficult circumstance that has come his way? As if prison wasn't enough, now there's rivalry directed at him. How does he evaluate that? Well, look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Paul's point is, man, who cares? If these guys are out there preaching the gospel, then who cares? Yeah, God will judge them for their bad motives, but I don't care about it. It's no sweat off my back because they're preaching the gospel. For Paul, everything came down to the gospel. If they're out there preaching the gospel, they can have the worst motives in the world. They can say the worst things about me in the world. I don't care. Because the gospel's going forward and that is all that matters. That's really insightful to to compare this passage. Keep your finger in Philippians 1 and turn to the left in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. When Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 1, He is interacting with a a similar reality. There are preachers in Galatia preaching out of bad motives. Look at how Paul handles them. Start with me in verse 6 of Galatians 1. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Now, accursed is a nice English way of saying what Paul is actually saying. He's saying, let these guys be damned. That's, that's literally his words. They, I, I curse them to hell for what they're doing. Why the difference? You got preachers preaching out of bad motives in both Galatia and Philippi. Why does Paul, to those doing it in Rome, say, eh, no big deal? Whereas in Galatia, he says, let them be damned. Why the difference? Because of the gospel. It's all about the content of the gospel. The guys in Rome were getting it right. They were out there preaching that mankind is, is sinful and the penalty of our sin is death. Jesus died for us and rose from the dead and you can be saved through faith. Through faith alone. You believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you are saved. Okay, that's the gospel. So Paul can say, hey, great. You're gonna be judged for your motives, but good job preaching the gospel. In Galatia, what are they doing? Well, they're saying, 
Mankind is sinful. Penalty of sin is death. Jesus died and rose from the dead. How are you saved? Uh, You should believe, but also you must obey the Mosaic law. In Galatia, they were preaching works-based salvation. You want to get to heaven, obey the law. Paul says that is damnable. You're not preaching the gospel. You're preaching a false gospel that will get people lost, not saved. So when you get the gospel wrong, Paul brings the curses of hell upon you because it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. When Paul looks at life, he sees life really through, through the lens of the gospel. If you're getting the gospel right, then okay. God will judge you for your motives, but it's okay. So when we look at the passage this morning, what, what, are, we, what are we drawing away from this? Paul, Paul is really telling us, hey, you know, prison, it looks bad. It looks like things are going bad for me. It looks like Satan has won a great victory, but uh-uh. God has turned the tables, and actually it's working out for great good. Because through my imprisonment, God is moving the gospel forward. Among the guards and the civilians of Rome, and even in the church of Rome, he's inspiring other believers to go out there and share. Yeah, some are doing it out of bad motives, but who cares? They're out there preaching the gospel, and that's all that matters. Paul saw all of life through the gospel. And that really draws us to what I want us to focus on the remainder of this morning. I want us to really draw the lesson out. What, what, what is Paul teaching us in this passage? What is our takeaway? What should we learn from Paul's example? Well, I, I think quite simply when we look at this passage, I, I would summarize it this way. I think Paul's challenging us to see our world through gospel-colored glasses. Let me explain that phrase. It may sound silly. It's actually uh, really profound. I didn't come up with it. My, my wife came up with this idea. She and I, a couple years ago, were studying the book of Philippians, and we went through week after week, and when we got to the end, and she looked at it and said, you know, Blake, I, I feel like the big idea here is that Paul sees everything in his life through gospel-colored glasses. It's like when you were six years old and your parents took you to Walmart and you went to the kids' sunglasses section of the store and you pulled down those little toy sunglasses with the bright orange lenses or the bright green lenses or the pink lenses and and, and you put those sunglasses on and all of a sudden your world has changed. All of a sudden those sunglasses tint your world. They they change profoundly everything that you see. Same idea here. Paul is telling us that when we became citizens of heaven, God gave us new glasses through which we see the world radically different. Glasses that are colored with the gospel. Now, the one difference between the analogy there is those sunglasses at Walmart, they actually distort reality. The world is not actually all orange. (laughs) But in the case of the gospel, they actually, for the first time, make you see clearly. When you put on the the gospel-colored glasses that Paul is handing you in this passage, for the first time in your life, you see life as it is. You see reality as it is. You see you were born with distorted vision. That's what sin is. It distorts your vision. You can't see life as it really is. So Paul gives you new glasses, a new lens, the gospel. If you see everything through the advance of the gospel, then you see clearly. It will turn your world upside down. That's really what Paul's doing here. He's saying, hey, your world needs to be turned upside down. If you wear gospel-colored glasses, all of a sudden, those things in life that you always called good, maybe some of them aren't so good. And those things that you always called bad, well, maybe some of them aren't so bad. Let's look at both of those examples. Um, There's a lot of things in life that we are led or, or assume that we should call good that actually aren't. Paul defines for us in this passage, when you put on gospel colored glasses, you find out that bad is anything that hinders the gospel. Even things that you were born calling good, if they hinder the spread of the gospel, they're bad. I want to give you a radical example, shake you up a little bit here. What about religious freedom? What about our religious freedom that we enjoy in the United States? Is that a good thing? Well, 
Maybe. Maybe not. If you read a book, The Heavenly Man, it's, it's an autobiographical account or biographical account of a believer and evangelist in China named Brother Yoon. And he has shared the gospel for, for many years and spent a lot of years in prison, persecuted because of his faith. And what's amazing is that towards the end of the book, he's finally able to come to some churches in the Western world and share his story. And he tells believers in churches in the West, hey, please do not pray for religious freedom in China. Please do not pray for persecution to end. Why? Because he has seen persecution is how the church grows in China. When the government turns on the cranks, when they turn down the screws, that's how the church expands in China. When persecution comes, it inspires us to step out in boldness. Okay, so we always look at our religious freedom and we assume, hey, this is a good thing, this is a God-given thing. Well, when is it good? Well, your religious freedom, it's good when you use it as an opportunity to share the gospel. When you go out there and you use your freedom to do things that they can't do in China, well, that's good. When is it a bad thing? Well, your religious freedom is a bad thing when it causes you to take the gospel for granted. And it's free, it's easy, so why bother sharing it? Well, then religious freedom is a bad thing. We need to learn from Brother Yun. We need to learn. Hey, the gospel is a precious thing. That's what persecution teaches you. Persecution can be a source of good when it teaches you how valuable and precious the gospel is. To me, this is a great source of comfort reflecting on Brother Yoon's prayers. I, I talk to a lot of you who are parents, and I know you have a lot of fear for your children. You have a lot of fear because of the direction of our country. It would appear that our country is headed in a direction where things like homosexuality will be embraced and faith will be ridiculed. That sounds like something to inspire fear, but I think this passage tells us, no, don't let it inspire fear. It can actually be used by God for good. If that's the direction our our country heads, then yes, your children will grow up in an environment that persecutes them, but guess what? God can use that persecution to make your child a better evangelist than you are just like he's doing in China. Okay, things that we naturally call bad, maybe they're not. Maybe they're actually good when God uses them to advance the gospel. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing I want to see. The second thing is how Paul defines good. Okay, so, so, so those things that are, what is bad? Bad are those things that hinder the gospel. What is good? Good is anything that advances the gospel. Now, uh, in this passage, there's actually a couple ways that, uh, that, that God uses painful things to advance the gospel. Let, let me say, really, uh, the subject that we're talking about here at the end of the sermon that we're kind of bouncing around is the subject of suffering. What I'm hoping to do this morning in the, in the context of this passage is give you all kind of a theology of suffering. How are you to look at the painful circumstances of your life? It's easy to embrace those things that are comfortable. What do you do with the things that aren't? What do you do when suffering and pain comes your way? That's really what we're talking about here. Now, you were born and bred calling suffering bad. You were born avoiding suffering at all costs. That was your goal in life. I want to avoid pain. I want to avoid suffering. Paul's telling us this morning that, hey, guess what? If something advances the gospel, it can actually be a source of good. Now, we see that God does that in Paul's life. He takes something that looks very bad, prison, and he uses that to advance the gospel in the world, to to move the gospel forward in the hearts and minds of unbelievers. Now, that was true in Paul's case. It's true in the Church of China. It can be true in our own lives. When God brings suffering into your life, you can respond to that suffering in a way that draws people to Jesus. Suffering can actually be a, a new avenue for sharing the gospel. But not only does suffering cause the gospel to go forward in in the world in general, it also causes the gospel to go forward in our own lives, to deepen us in the gospel. That's how God designed it. When when you suffer, the gospel sinks its roots deeper in you. I want to show you a couple verses to prove that point. 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 1, 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's Paul's point? Well, they, they suffered a lot in Asia. You can go back and read in Acts about all the suffering that Paul and his companions went through in Asia. Paul's point is, hey, it, it looks bad, but actually, God has used our suffering to bring about great good. He's grown our dependence. That's what suffering does. It, it grows our dependence on God. When, when life is good, it's easy for me to walk on my own two feet. When life is bad, I cling to Jesus because I have no other choice. So suffering, it deepens the gospel's reach in my own life because it grows me in dependence. Another passage James 1, 2-4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is saying is that, you know, suffering, it's a lot like weight training. When you go to the gym and you lift heavy weights, what are you doing? You are tearing apart your muscles. You are tearing down, you are causing pain to your muscles. Why are you doing it? Not because you enjoy the pain. I hope you don't. You're doing it because once torn down, your muscles grow back bigger. That's the whole point of weight training. Tear them down, they grow back bigger. Guess what? That is a very, very accurate description of the spiritual life. God allows suffering to come in your life because it tears you down so it can grow you back bigger. He allows you to be torn down so you can grow back stronger, more like Jesus Christ. That's what suffering will do. Not only will it extend the gospel in the world so other people hear about Jesus, just as in Paul's case, but it will extend the gospel in our own lives so that Jesus comes to own more and more of us. That's what suffering can accomplish. So I want to end this morning by kind of drawing us together, kind of, again, a theology of suffering. What do we know about suffering from this passage? Well, number one, suffering can be a cause of great good. Because we have a great God. He can bring great good from suffering. But I, I need to finish this statement. You'll notice there's an ellipse there. Because <laughs> we can't end here. Suffering be, can be a cause for great good, but we always need to clarify, it is never in and of itself good. Think back about the passage. Notice what Paul does. Does Paul ever call prison good? No. Prison's not good. What is good? Good is the advance of the gospel that God is bringing through prison. Are the bad motives of those guys out preaching, is that good? No. What's good is that God is moving the gospel forward. Paul never calls the pain itself good. Suffering is not good. If you look at the Bible, you find God did not invent suffering. He did not create pain or suffering. God created Adam and Eve, perfect human beings, and placed them in a lush garden that perfectly provided for all of their needs. God did not design us to suffer. That was not his intent. What is, the, what is the foundation of suffering? What created suffering? Sin. Sin is the cause of all suffering in this world. For all of time, it's all from sin. Our sin brought a curse on this planet. Our sin brought a curse on us. And now human beings for the rest of time have been bringing suffering into one another's lives. God didn't create suffering. God does not call suffering good. God can bring good for suffering, but it's not in and of itself good. It's really, it's helpful for me. One of my favorite passages uh, when Julie and I have been through times of suffering is to think back about how Jesus reacted to the death of his good friend Lazarus. Okay, remember, Jesus is the son of God. He knows all things. He's infinite. He's, he's perfect. His good friend Lazarus dies and Jesus travels to Bethany And as he goes, he reveals to his disciples that, guess what? Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
And he knows that by raising Lazarus from the dead, many people are going to be drawn to Jesus. He knows that's going to happen, okay? He knows all the good that God is about to bring through the death of Lazarus. But then Jesus, he encounters Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and he sees the grief and the sorrow etched on his face, and what does he do? Does he tell them, hey, ladies, buck up. It's all going to work out for good. Hey, quit crying. It's no big deal. I'm going to bring great good from this. No, what does he do? He weeps. He knows the good that's about to come, and yet he weeps. That's what God does. That's what God showed us in the incarnation, is that God grieves in our pain. God does not rejoice in our pain. God did not want us to experience pain. He doesn't sit up in heaven, clicking his fingers again, and thinking, all right, what's the next suffering I get to bring in Blake's life? What's the next bolt of lightning I get to hit him with? No. God does not rejoice in suffering. He does not call suffering good. What is good? Good is what he brings out of it. That's the greatness of our God. He enters into our grief. He grieves with us, and then in his infinite power, he turns around and he brings good out of the pain. That's the hope of Christianity. Not that God renames bad, good, but that out of the bad, he brings good. That's the beauty of it. Suffering is not in and of itself good. So when you have a friend come to you and tell you that they were just diagnosed with cancer, don't tell them, hey, buck up. It's all gonna be good. No, grieve with them. Realize that God hates cancer. God is not rejoicing in this pain that they're experiencing. God hates it. And yet in the midst of grieving with them, God in his infinite power will bring good. That's why we rejoice. That's the good news. God can bring good even out of pain. So that's the second thing we need to remember. God can bring good, but suffering is never in and of itself good. And then next clarification, final point, good only comes if I respond rightly. Think again about Paul's example. What if Paul had been like everybody else? Any other person thrown into prison unjustly, how would the normal person respond to that? Well, probably bitterness, self-pity, anger. What if that guard had been shackled for four hours to a guy who did nothing but complain and moan about being thrown in prison unjustly? Well, gospel probably wouldn't have gone very far because Paul would have looked just like everybody else. There would be nothing remarkable about him. Why did the gospel go forward? Not because Paul was in prison, but because Paul responded rightly to imprisonment. Because Paul said, yeah, prison stinks, but I will rejoice. I will be content. The same is true in our own lives. When you suffer, you have an opportunity. You can respond like the rest of the world does. And you can use your suffering as an excuse to blame God. You can allow it to turn into bitterness and into selfishness. If you do, then guess what? You're your suffering is wasted. It's pointless. It doesn't draw anyone to Jesus. It doesn't mature you. You're just responding like the world does. Or you can respond like Paul did in verse 18. You can say, yeah, this suffering, it stinks. I grieve over this. And I believe God grieves over this, but I believe that God will bring good. And in that, I rejoice. I rejoice because God, I trust you're gonna bring good out of this pain. When you do that, then people are drawn to Jesus because that's supernatural. They're drawn to a Jesus who can provide hope in the midst of pain. And in addition to that, God works in you to mature you, to deepen the roots of the gospel in your life. As you respond to suffering well, he deepens and matures you. I think this this concept of responding rightly is summarized really well in one of my favorite songs uh, in Christian music right now, Blessed Be Your Name by Matt Redman. I think Matt really gets this idea right. He says, blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, then when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. That's not surprising. But here is the surprising part. 
Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And then he summarizes. You give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. What he's telling us is that when you put on gospel-colored glasses and you see your life through the lens of the gospel, you have an opportunity. When you begin to suffer, as all of us do, when pain comes your way, you can choose not to respond like the rest of the world in bitterness, self-pity, anger. Instead, to rejoice, to say, God, blessed be your name. Not because this pain is good, but because you are a great enough God to bring good out of my pain, to redeem it, to advance the gospel. When you do that, you will grow. When you do that, God will advance the gospel on this planet. That's the great news. Your suffering doesn't have to be wasted. It can actually be one of the most productive tools that God uses in your life to advance the gospel in this world and in you. This morning, I don't have any little catchy application to give you as you walk out of here. No new step to practice this week. What I'm hopefully giving you guys, what I think Paul's giving you, is is a radically new way to see life. My question for you this morning is, will you choose to see your circumstances through gospel-colored glasses? Will you choose to step back and evaluate the conditions of your life through the grid of the advance of the gospel? Will you call bad any of those things that hinder the gospel, even if they feel good? Will you call good any of those things that advance the gospel, even if they hurt? That's the challenge for you this morning. Will you put on gospel-colored glasses? Will you see life through the advance of the gospel like Paul did? That's not something that comes easily. It's not something that comes overnight. It's something that we can practice, that we can challenge ourselves in, and that above all else, we can pray for. So I want to pray for all of us now, and then I would challenge you this week to pray. Pray that God will help you see life through the classes of the gospel. See it as it truly is. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage this morning, Lord. We confess that we were born with distorted vision. We were born unable to see life as it truly is. Lord, we desperately need you. We pray that you would reorient us, Lord, that you would turn our world upside down and give us the ability to see our circumstances accurately, Lord, to see them through the the lens of the gospel. Father, we pray that we would learn in faith to call bad anything that hinders the gospel, even if it feels good, and that we would learn in faith also to call anything good that advances the gospel, even if it's painful, even in the midst of suffering, not to rejoice in the suffering itself, but to rejoice knowing that you grieve with us and in your power you will bring good from our pain. We praise you, God, that that's the kind of God you are, that when Satan attacks, you take his attack and turn it for great good, for the advance of your kingdom and for the growth of our lives. We praise you. You are infinitely powerful. You are all wise. You are always good. Help us to trust you more. Help us to see our world through the lens of the gospel. We pray this all in the name of your son who made the gospel possible and who has given us hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.